Welcome back to The Grateful Leader. Some people, like Pastor Judith Christ, just have a way with words and the unique way that they look at life is kind of like, how did I not ever think of that before? And of course, it's always been this way and this is available to me to engage with this thing in this way. Judith is so cool. It's amazing to see how she's overcome a lot of frustration and you know difficulty within herself to where she's now grown to be one of the premier and most visible female pastors in the United States. And yet to have to overcome those challenges within herself every single day and to do it with such grace and gratitude. I can't wait for you to enjoy this episode. So let's get right to it. Judith Christ is here today and Judith is my friend and my mentor and someone I really look up to and has a lot to give us. She's a fifth generation pastor and church planter. She's devoted her life to helping people. She's survived four miscarriages and is now the mother of three boys and is a loving grandmother to three cherished grandchildren. And we're going to have lots of fun stuff to cover today. Judith, thank you so much for joining me. It is my delight, Hillary. I'm so glad to be joining with you. And I love Love the name of the podcast, The Grateful Leader, because that's a key word in my life. Yeah. Judith, what I love to start with is a conversation about who you are on paper. I love to hear what people like give their resume rundown about who they are on paper, because yeah. then we get to get into the core of who we are in our hearts and like our purpose and, sure. and those sorts of things. So tell me, who are you on paper? Well, on paper, I have traveled the world. I have late in life become an executive coach. I have more experience than I have years in the sense that I stand on the shoulder of so many people who have devoted their life to help others. And I live in a family of empaths that equipped me for the devotion in my heart toward helping people. So on paper, it looks like I've been a lot of places, done a lot of things, but there's so much more to me than that. Yeah. Where did you grow up, Judith? I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, on the outskirts of town on 40 acres, which was basically a farm with my grandparents living on the opposite side of the property. And so an idyllic childhood, a little bit separated from society. So we had our own social circle with just six kids. I'm number five and loved my childhood. I think my childhood is looked at with rose colored glasses. My siblings don't all have the same viewpoint, but yeah, I loved my childhood. I love it. I knew that you and Terry had a background in Oklahoma, but I don't think I knew that you grew up in a field in Oklahoma. I grew up in a field in Kansas, right by the Oklahoma border. So it's a little town called South Haven, which is literally the first town when you're crossing I-35 from Oklahoma into Kansas. It's actually, it's highway 51. Like you have to be on the highway, not even the freeway is the little area that I grew up in. So we grew up just down the road from each other. That's really true. In Kansas terms, a couple hours away, or I guess Midwest terms, a couple hours away, we're like next door neighbors. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's something about growing up with Midwestern mindset makes me think I'm a little more rooted, but it does color your perspective of life in a certain way. When you talk about being an empath, so I have been told that I'm an empath and sometimes I think it's a lot of hooey. So tell me what it is to be an empath, because I think that that might help me and definitely our audience. Sure. Well, I've been told that I'm an empath and I think 
people see that because I am very sensitive toward caring for the needs of people and looking beyond their exterior. My grandparents were elderly and we actually moved out of our home and into their home to care for them. So I was in the room with both of my grandparents when they passed. And I have a heart for getting the gold out of the elderly and hearing people's stories. And I actually, in college, worked for a paraplegic. So a lot of my story has to do with uh, trying to make the difference in helping people who need a voice or a helping hand. So perhaps that is empathic. Yeah, I love it. When I meet people and they're empathic, a lot of times I feel like it's they, at least this is how I identify. I don't know that I'm empathic so much is perhaps always on a trauma response high alert from having grown up the way I grew up. And maybe yours is a very healthy version of being an empath, you know? Yeah, I probably have swung the pendulum of negative responses as well, because I'd be around people that had great needs and become sick myself by taking on their problems or uh, extremely overcommit to thinking I was the answer to their problems. And so balance and health has come through experience, I think. Tell me about that, because I want to learn from this. So for context, you and your husband are pastors of probably one of the largest churches in Arizona. I'm making up statistics. So you can kind of correct me if I'm out of way out of bounds, but we can exaggerate a little. It's kind of Uh, fun. (laughs) If that's not the case, I think it is though. So you got a lot of people who are looking to you for help and guidance. And when you're an empath, I can only imagine that you have had years of exactly what you've described. How do you find the balance? Yeah, good question. For me, early on, I realized that I would not survive if I didn't replicate myself in some way and, you know, really build priorities as to how my time was spent and what I allowed my mind to dwell on. So, I learned about making boundaries with people, but I found a better version of that in building filters where I didn't have to keep people away from me, but I found a way to honor the best things and receive from people that are unlike me and maybe going through things different than me. So I built some filters just in what I was allowing myself to dwell upon and I recruited people to help. So we have a fantastic pastoral team who follow up on people with needs, but I can get very strong. If I think someone's been neglected, I will rush to that need myself if necessary. So I think probably trying to replicate myself and train others to be aware and responsive has helped me to know that I'm not ignoring problems, that I'm actually finding a way to address them in some fashion. How do you help train people to respond to folks in crisis? What are some of the tools that you give them? Well, that's a very interesting question. And thank you for asking it. First things is awareness. If a person is committed to go on a training process, I help them to look for and point out needs that they would notice. I point out things that maybe they have missed and train them in conversation where that they will ask questions beyond the surface. And if we can develop good listening skills, we'll be much more aware. So conversations are the key to finding out what is going 
going on in a person's life, and then making ourselves aware of resources around us. Uh, in my work, there are resources within our own community of faith, and there are resources in the community around us. And if I find an area that there's not a resource, then I commit some time and effort to either developing a resource or helping someone else to see that as a value so that that resource will be developed. And the training process is really good listening skills, asking sincere and intuitive questions and connecting people with resources. Super connector. I want to tell you a story about you. I was thinking about it's really cool in life when you get to remember the first time you saw someone. And I don't think that happens a lot. Like I remember the first time I saw Sean, I was 19. I remember the shirt I was wearing. Like I remember all of it. I remember stepping down into his apartment. I mean, this is like almost 20 years ago and I still remember it. But probably only four years ago, I remember the first time I met you. You, I didn't actually meet you. I just remember the first time I saw you and I'm so grateful for that memory. And here's what it is. There's this tiny petite woman and she is absolutely lovely and full of grace and reminds me so much of my dear friend, Lisa, who the two of you actually really favor each other. And you're on stage and you're talking about turbulence in an airplane. And the moral of the story was you had been on an airplane and there was a baby crying and the baby didn't understand that when you go up and you go down the pressure in your ears, it hurts for a minute, but it goes away. Everybody else in the plane knew that this baby will stop crying eventually because this pressure will go away way eventually, but the kid doesn't know it. And that so much of life is sometimes we're going through the turbulence. Sometimes we're going through the pressure. We feel discomfort, but it's just part of the journey. It's part of the ride. And it's part of getting us to the destination we want to get to. So kind of number one is that has to have been four years ago. And that really landed with me. So thank you. And number two is I really would love for you to share about some of that turbulence within the context of losing babies, of losing pregnancies and hopes and futures and what that is like, because that's a lot of turbulence. That's a lot of pressure. And to go through it repeatedly and to then be on the other side of it. I don't know the statistic and you might, but there's a large significant, a a large statistic, a number of women who have miscarriages every year and then don't get to talk about it because they're afraid it makes other people feel uncomfortable. My sister experienced miscarriages. Her mother-in-law experienced miscarriages. And so they had each other to talk to and they're both women of faith. And so they had that to lean on, but man, that turbulence and that pressure can be very isolating. It really can be, you know, in my upbringing, there was a high priority on a girl becoming a wife and a mother. We were, like I had said before, a little segregated from normal everyday society. And so this was something that was expected of me. And I thought I was going to be smart and put that off a little bit after I married so that we could get to know each other. And we were church planters. So we were getting to know people in the community. And oops, I got pregnant. And so after that first miscarriage, I decided that I wanted to have babies because I felt like something was taken from me. And the whole idea of not being able to fulfill a purpose 
purpose that you think you're born for and the expectations of others around you, not knowing how to communicate the information and what it does just in changing your hormones and how you feel about yourself. You know, I already was empathic and probably became quite pitiful during that period of time. Thank God my husband was patient and encouraging, but I did experience a lot that I have talked with others about experiencing. And the truth is a lot of women experience this and don't want to talk about it, but it is helpful to engage with those who have also experienced loss because it's like a cleansing in your soul to be able to put your thoughts and feelings into word containers, examine them and decide what you want to do with them. So I did have the experience of being able to talk with a few people, but I got pregnant again and that happened a second time. And not knowing what the difficulty was, was it something I was doing? Was it something uh, physical that I didn't know about in my life? It became quite confusing actually. And that was the biggest word that I could say besides just being physically ill and my immune system being devastated. I think that season in my life was so confusing because I was trying to pursue purpose and help other people. And yet I was not physically viable in my own opinion. So third miscarriage, I had a bad blood transfusion. It was quite an emergency situation where I was hemorrhaging and they didn't test the blood appropriately. And I received what they call Kel positive, which is like an extreme RH factor. And it only compounded the physical problems that I started having where that I was sick and just immune compromised. The doctor actually that was involved with me at the time wanted me to testify against the system that didn't test blood appropriately at that point for pregnant women. And I got on board with that for a period of time, but it was consuming all of my time and effort. And I was feeling quite negative about life and I got pregnant again. But this time our fourth pregnancy, I carried that baby as long as six months. So I thought I had overcome the hurdle of miscarriage. But when I started bleeding and cramping, I was in another country. I was in another place and had to go to charity hospital where that they didn't speak the language. And just, it was a confusing and uncomfortable situation in which I really had to find how to be rooted in my own identity in order to just get through the crisis of the moment. But we did get through the crisis of the moment and began to do some things just to take care of myself as a human, as an individual. I call it soul care. And uh, there's a lot of talk nowadays about self-care. And that's so important for women. I think women specifically, because our body goes through a lot of changes in life and we have to take inventory and take care of ourselves. But I had to do a lot of soul care in order to take care of myself physically as well during that period. So I did get pregnant a fifth time against the doctor's advice. At that point, he was like, hey, girl, we got to find another way for you to feel fulfilled. And we were involved in helping girls to find placement for their babies if they didn't want them. We were involved in foster care and adoption and thought maybe that was the course of action for me to go. Being empathic, I was drawn to every woman in need, of course, every baby in need at that particular point. But I understood 
the dilemma that some women are in concerning not knowing how to raise their babies. And so I was trying to equip myself with information to educate myself concerning not just my circumstances, but the circumstances of girls around me. And I got pregnant a fifth time. So the doctor was like, he gave me a due date and he talked with me about taking care of myself. I went back for a checkup and they didn't find a heartbeat. So I thought, okay, I'm going to miscarry this baby as well. But I didn't miscarry that baby. And my husband and I were doing some daily things just to take care of ourselves as far as identity and our communication with each other. And I had personal daily communion with God, just receiving what I believe were promises from God for me and didn't miscarry that baby. So the ups and downs of what I didn't know was happening is so similar to the story you told about feeling the pressure in the airplane because other people could explain things, but not to the degree that would make me understand what was happening with my own body. But the beautiful part about this story is they found a heartbeat and I delivered my son, my oldest son, actually six weeks after the original due date. So I feel like I've had a miracle in my life and I'm grateful for that. Not everyone experiences that, but I've had the joys and the sorrows of loss and gain. And that's put me in, I think, a unique perspective to listen better and to not take life for granted. Every time I hear this, and I haven't heard it enough, every time it still moves me. I think that it's like when you hear about miracles happening and you don't really, it's like you hear it from a sister's friend's uncle's brother, but then when you get to hear the miracle and I get to see your kids walking around, like reliving humans on Facebook, friends with one of them, like it is so incredible. And how did those experiences shape who you are as a leader today? Yeah, wow, that's really an important question, because I think everything in our life shapes us to some extent. But when you feel like that you've gone to rock bottom in your own soul, so parts of this that I didn't describe were not just confusion, but feeling like, am am I losing my mind? I mean, the kind of deep emotional pain that I didn't know, I lost my center probably a couple of times during this period of time that I was losing babies and going through illness, but coming through the other side of this and seeing something so extraordinary that the doctors called a miracle. This experience that I had lifted my hope to say, there's a way through it, not just for myself, but for others as well. And sometimes I can be helpful in that way through if someone doesn't have a miracle, perhaps they are just not seeing what I'm seeing as their possibility that I can alert them to this, this whole process of me going from despair to being a hope-filled person. Sometimes empathic people are not necessarily hope-filled people, but I think that that shaped me specifically To where that my optimism includes my pessimism, if you can understand that, you know, I know that the world is a tragic place and I know that people are hurting. I know that there's danger and evil in the world, but in spite of that, I see light and I see hope and I want to be a part of the solution. And I think those experiences help to shape that perspective in my life. Incredible. I love it. I think that the reality of the amount of darkness, it's 
the other side of the coin is the same amount of light. Wow. Yeah. And I can so relate with where you're coming from. And I often kind of grapple with this. Um, Sean and I did a, one of our podcast hosts is going to be on and we'll probably talk about it extensively because I'm always an oversharer, much to Sean's dismay. <laughs> uh, jokes on him, but he's always known this about me is we just started to do some really um, deep dive marriage counseling because yeah. we're seeing like our business doing great. We're seeing our kids doing great. And I was like, man, I want to have the kind of marriage you read about, you know? So let's, let's figure this out. Let's create additional connection. And, you know, one of the things that really came to light was my frustration with the expectation that I was supposed to have kids. And what if that, like, there comes a point where you're like, you start thinking, was it the expectation that I was supposed to have kids that led me to have kids or was it my choice? Right. And you can go back in time and, and recast things over and over with how you sure. feel about it, depending on whether you're happy with husband or not, sure. um, or like thrilled to be a mother or not. When I was told that I would never have kids because I had old eggs, I had really a thick shell around my eggs. I was like, heard of that. Yeah. yeah, I had no idea. I didn't know this was a thing, but I had you know, uh, geriatric eggs in a 27 year old body. And so what they did, we did in vitro and they took the eggs, they shaped them and then poked little holes in them and then put them in a Petri dish with, um, Sean's contribution. And now we have Ryan and Evie and, um, Lincoln and Lucy was a big surprise, a medical mystery because that was never supposed to happen either. Wow. Um, it's incredible. And I always joke that don't over pray because I feel like perhaps I over prayed because I had four kids in four years, but I don't know if you can relate and it's okay. If you, if you don't feel this way, did you ever find yourself where you had wanted this child or these children so badly? And then you thought, man, what have I gotten myself into? Well, completely. (laughs) Completely. Yes. So probably had a little postpartum depression after my son's birth. I'd hoped so big and my expectations were so high, but, you know, just physically keeping up with a newborn, I really lost confidence in my ability to do what I thought was necessary. There's probably a little perfectionism mixed in that, that I had to overcome. Not probably there is, um, (laughs) And uh, the need for control, and I was out of control. This child was controlling at that point with his needs. And I looked at, should I have pressed so hard for having children? And then, of course, getting pregnant with my now second son. I had toddlers and babies, you know, in the house and thinking, what have I done to my life? because I had a little bit of a career trajectory that I thought I was going to fulfill and uh, put all my education off. Looking back now, though, I think I could encourage anyone in that situation that the truth is that as much as we want our life to be all about our choices, some of the best things in life come out of things that we just embrace on the journey. And they also contribute to who we are. And that brings me to the word resilience, which I'm in love with at this season in my life, especially after the past few years in the world. I think resilience does not have to do with outside circumstances, choices beyond my control. 
but I can choose to cultivate health in my soul and in my life to where that whatever bumpy road is on my life's journey, that I'm not going to fall apart because I can have some resilience based on what I'm rooted in and my outlook in life. So yes, I totally had moments in which I was overwhelmed with motherhood. Terry and I had disagreements that I thought were going to wreck our lives forever. And here we were committed to helping others, but still had to do self-work and relational work within ourselves. And thank God I had a partner who was willing to do that along with me and didn't just pity me, but took my hand and walked the journey. But it was important for me to take personal responsibility and address those things that had become so out of balance. And I'm thankful I still am able to look at it as something good that was out of balance rather than something that was tragically wrong with me, which is what I thought others saw. I love it. I want to shift gears a little bit. I'm going back to to my mind in church and something else that really stood out for me and has just made me, uh, I guess, a believer. I don't know if it's, I guess a fan is really what it comes down to a Terry and Judith fan. Terry talks a lot about feminism without the word feminism. Cause I think that sometimes we can imagine everybody taking off their bra and burning it, which I do about five o'clock every day when I get home. <laughs> I'm with um, you. <laughs> it's like, I saw a meme on Facebook the other day that was like, the first thing I do home is when I get home is immediately go dress like a homeless person. And it's like, that is me for sure. But in all seriousness, Terry will talk about things like, I loved the series that we did on David. We, you know, cause I was there for it, <laughs> my contribution where we talked about, it was during the Me Too movement and talking about how we can see that this is a trend that is even in the Bible. Yeah. And the other thing, bring this up and then kind of get your thoughts on it is talking about women covering up and how, I mean, I just got my arm hair stood up when he talked about how, I don't remember the exact phrase, but my takeaway was We need to stop telling women to cover up and we need to start telling men to honor women was my takeaway. And I'm wondering how much of that is shaped by you. Is that something that Terry grew up with? Kind of how does that conversation, I know it has to start at home because then it goes to the pulpit. It's true. Yeah. I wish I knew how much that I was a part of shaping that perspective. We've definitely had many conversations about this. But the kind of home that we both grew up with had to do with the perspective on women as really needing to be in the background, like children seen and not heard, and really for the purpose of supporting the men's career and as an accessory rather than, you know, a a daughter of God and equal in creation. And so there were so many layered messages from our upbringing that supported that. We had rules like women didn't have the choice to cut their hair. We didn't wear pants because that was men's apparel. We didn't wear makeup. We were kind of frowned upon if we pursued education. Anytime that a woman was trying to uh, rise in leadership, she was suspect. And so Terry was a person who just recognized that that was not appropriate from the beginning. He had a high respect for women. His mother was a strong woman. And I'm sure that she contributed to that 
somewhat. She was a registered nurse. And before she married, she had her own boat. She, you know, just not, not just a car, but she had her own boat. So she was older than his father. And I'm sure that his respect for his mom had something to do with that. But I had opinions and I had perspective and he honored that and listened to me. And that was not normal among the guys that I was raised around. And so he won my respect fairly quickly after having a few conversations with him. But Thierry has always had a heart for justice. And with me being empathic and him being justice minded, just looking and trying to be honest about the fact that every one of us have bias that we must address, we quickly looked at the bias of our own perspectives and our upbringing and walked away from the confining rhetoric and actual theology that shaped that perspective at a very young age. So we stepped out on our own beyond that to plant churches that would really reflect the value of humanity in all of its forms. And so from early days of our relationship, we really went for trying to, of course, solve world problems, which might sound arrogant and prideful, but we just looked for ways of elevating those who were unseen and unheard. And as Terry began to, you know, really look honestly at guys in his life and the mentors that he had been around, he just saw the flaws in that. So for me, that gave me permission to seek out what areas I wanted to speak up in. You know, I wanted to maintain my femininity. I wanted to maintain my perspective of being a loving mom. At the same time, I was put in a situation in which leadership was needed, and I needed to develop the skill sets to be in the room and at the table. And so that was my journey to not despise the fact that other people looked down on me, but to develop the skill set to maintain my own in those arenas. One of the skill sets I, in reading the questionnaire for the podcast that you shared is that you have dyslexia. I do. I how, had, does, how does that show up? Yeah. In the most weird and wonderful ways. Yes. So my whole family, looking back on it now, had undiagnosed ADHD and dyslexia. It's definitely a family trait. And so laughter and not taking ourselves too seriously was the way we got through life. Just forgetfulness. And like, for instance, and very important meetings with government officials, introducing myself as the person I'm introducing myself to, you know, calling myself by their name. That has happened more than once, which is humiliating, but hysterically funny when you get away from it. Yeah, it's just thinking, getting things backwards, not being able to memorize things very well. So typing my own name wrong when I'm signing off on letters, it's embarrassing at the same time. Yeah. It's embarrassing, uh, but we can laugh at it if we know where that's coming from. So dyslexia by getting my own phone number wrong, giving out my email backwards, uh, signing my name, uh, just in my posts on social media, feeling like that I really need somebody to check everything that goes out because a lot of misspelling. So things that just take a beat and realize I'm not all that. Hitting home for me 
in the sense of my main client base in my law firm speaks Spanish. And I am so afraid of looking dumb by butchering Spanish that I will understand a lot of what's going on, but I won't speak Spanish because I'm so afraid that they're going to laugh at me. And usually they do like, because they're chuckling at this girl who's clearly trying, but not getting any of it right. And so it's like a sweet, it's not a laughing at, it's laughing with, but I, I can connect on that sense in that there's always something scary that we do. What has helped you to push through that? Because that that could just be something where you say, I'll do speaking, but I'm not going to do writing. But posting on social media, you don't post video every day. You you post a lot of written. That's really true. I have attempted to build a team around myself in order to help me do the things that I think just are, you know, 21st century things that need to be done. But I didn't go back to school for a very long time because I was terrified of writing. And I did take many speaking engagements over putting things down. But I'm at the place right now that I think, number one, there there are enough tools that tools and a team help me gain a level of confidence that I think I can proceed forward with documenting some of the incredible experiences that I've had. So I see that in my future. On the other hand, being able to get through life by making people aware that I am aware that I'm not always thinking in a straight line. My words don't always come out in a straight line, as in linear thinking. And if I'm writing in any form, I usually try to develop a relationship with someone or through conversation let them know that I do have some limitation in that area and that I'm aware of it and would love for them to let me know if there's anything that they're not understanding. I'd love to clear it up. That's awesome. One closing story that I would love for you to retell because I remember the, the fringes of it and I know that there's so much more meat to it. But I remember you preaching about and really teaching because I feel like you're a teacher. We think about preachers and I think about people, uh, my experience in a Southern Baptist environment is a lot of yelling, which is traumatizing for someone like me to be yelled at. Um, So you're definitely a teacher is teaching about, I believe you're an accomplished pianist and having kind of, my memory is you having kind of sorted through an internal struggle about how to spend your time when you feel called to do one thing, but you really enjoy doing something else. And then the idea of having all eternity to get to enjoy doing that. Yeah, thank you for reminding me about that. I'd be glad to share. I had a few moments in my life where that I was in a negative space about what I could and couldn't do. Terry was traveling the world and being asked to speak in He's probably been in nearly 70 countries now speaking in universities, in church gatherings and supporting missions and charity movements around the world. And so I was the one when we first met that really had the heart to travel the world. In fact, if I hadn't married so young, I would have joined something like the Peace Corps or been a part of a missions organization that helped people. Potentially, I could have lent uh, help too. So that was always my perspective that I was called to be a missionary of some sort. I was going to help to dig wells and feed kids, you know, something. But when we married and Terry began to get the invitations and my role just kind of fell into the grooves of taking care of kids and pastoring people. 
training staff. And so I was really minding the store at home. While in my own view, he was getting to travel and experience the world and have the sense of wonder that I really felt like belonged in my life as well. So I developed a resentment and was kind of in a negative space about the course that my life was taking at that moment. And I had this conversation with God one day in which I was telling God, why did you create me with the desires? If in fact, I don't have the time in my life to develop it, I feel like I'm an artist. And in order to be an accomplished artist that would even live up to my own expectation or my own satisfaction, I would need to devote so many hours to developing that craft. My sister was a concert pianist and I played the piano and really feel like in my soul, I'm a musician, but to be accomplished enough to live up to my own satisfaction, it would take hours of concentrated effort. I really want to travel the world, but I have these responsibilities. So God, why would you create me with all of these desires if in fact I'm not able to fulfill them? And my heart was settled by what I felt like was an answer from, from God to me. And what settled me was that God spoke in my heart to say, Judith, you are created. You had a beginning, but you will never have an ending, that you will have all of of this life and all of eternity to develop the gifts and talents that I placed in you. But this life, there are priorities that you can fulfill by taking care of those that are around you and developing those things that come without you having to stress or strive over it. You can enjoy your life if you'll just take the journey as it comes. And that, that was the answer that I needed. I know that not everyone listening to your podcast would maybe take that answer as an answer, but it was an answer for for me. And the truth is, you know, after my children were raised, and I was able to train and delegate others to do everyday things of life, I've had the opportunity to train in some of these other areas. I went back to school and became an executive coach. And I am dabbling around with painting and doing some artistic things. So the truth of that answer that I felt like I received early on uh, really was helpful. And I've been able to travel the world with Terry. And so getting to know people that are unlike me is a part of my journey. So let me share just one more little thing with you. And that is the fact that I know I'm called to leadership and I know that I'm called to help shine a light on the path of others, not in their face uh, where they can't see or confuse them or with judgmentalism, but shine a light on their pathway if I have something that I think might be helpful for them. But probably three years ago, I was speaking in an environment that I didn't understand. And I didn't understand the values or the trajectory of the people that I was addressing. And I felt not intimidated, but probably a little judgmental about my interaction with this group and was just trying to figure out what my contribution should be. So I had four different talks that I was mulling over and deciding which of these to bring in that conference and decided that I was just going to pray and go to bed, wake up the next morning with a better perspective and make the decision. So I did that. After studying them all, I went to sleep. When I woke up in the morning, I awakened from a dream that was so vivid and so strong that I was impacted by it. 
and still am to this day. And that dream had some clear words in my own spirit that I think was very helpful to me. And the dream was of me walking across a broad plain toward a sunset with a few people around me. And we were just walking toward the sunset. And these are the words that I awakened with. And it said, everything you've learned and all of your experiences up till now will take you as far as you can see. However, to lead beyond the horizon, you will need to travel with people unlike you. And that changed my perspective about interacting with the people I was going to be ministering to, you know, I was going to be speaking to, because they had something that I could learn from and that can contribute to me, even though I didn't agree with everything in their perspective. But it also opened up a curiosity in me that I needed about people that were in my world or people that I needed to seek relationship with. And, uh, you know, for, for us as leaders to be grateful leaders, I think it's important, Hillary, that we look at not just leading in the context that we find ourselves in right now at this moment, but to think about the impact that we might have beyond the horizon. And if we are really trying to live a life that matters and matters more than our lifetime, that perhaps we can be curious to learn from others. This is so good. I'm thinking about how many ways this impacts our day-to-day life because I want to live a life of legacy. So my life right now perhaps is on the plane and the horizon is perhaps my legacy. And to, to Mm -hmm. actually have legacy, it means we need to be, we need to be journeying with people who may not think and and look and act just like us. And it's so easy for me to unfollow people who share things on social media. I don't like, I don't want to see that. This is, you know, I'm inviting this person into my living room on my couch when I'm always in my homeless clothes. I don't want to follow. I don't want to see that. But the other side of that is to be curious. The other side of that is to be curious about how we're all going somewhere together. Yeah. We might as well figure out how we can get there in a legacy building way. That is so good, Judith. Well, I love that about you. I love the fact that you're a lifelong learner. I love that you're embracing a variety of kinds of people. And thank you for providing this podcast for people who want to continue to grow and build relationship with people yeah. that want to lead gratefully. Lead gratefully. Because man, it is messy. Judith, a couple questions. Yes. What's your favorite food? Mexican all day long. Every it day is the best. It, it really yeah. is. So are, so then the ultimate question is, are you a red sauce or a green sauce on your enchiladas? <laughs> well, I love green chili chicken enchiladas. That's one of my favorite dishes, but red chili most of the time other than that. Okay. What is a book you're reading right now that you, you think would be helpful for folks who are listening? Yeah. Well, I am on a kick with studying just the origins of my faith and what I believe. And so there is a book by a lady named Sandra Richter. She is a professor and a Gundry chair in Westmont Seminary on the West Coast. And her book is The Epic of Eden. And it's my favorite book and I'm recommending it to everybody. And it just helps me understand the origins of what I believe and my identity and how I'm moving forward in life. And I tend to love this history and science and try to make sense of it all in everyday life. So this is really not just history, but the origins of my faith. And I love it. The Epic of Eden. 
Yes. It's a great book by Sandra Richter. By Sandra Richter. Okay. Mm-hmm. Last but not least, where can people follow you to hear more of these amazing insights that God has gifted you? Wow. Well, thank you for that. I am, you know, the, the problem with social media is I'm not going anywhere fast. Mm-hmm. So if people follow me, they get random views of my grandkids and events that I'm participating in. But every Thursday at 10 o'clock, I'm doing interviews with women in my world. And you can find that on PHX Sisterhood on Instagram. So at PHX Sisterhood on Instagram. I'm interviewing girls in in my world who have a story to tell. And I want to be curious and learn and listen from the women in my world. I love it. Judith, this has been a delight. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for sharing. I got all sorts of misty-eyed many times. And that is such a gift that you bring in that when, I think that when we feel tears coming and we know that the truth is there, we know that the truth is there. So thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a delight. Thank you, Hillary, and uh, go well.